Hi, I'm Robert Hilburn, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Have a great day. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. You guys know the line from the wait, right? I pulled into Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. You know, that's a reference to C.F. Martin Guitar Factory, established in 1833. Oh, hello, diggers. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist, coming to you from Pantheon HQ in San Francisco. Uh, So, what's up? Or should I say, what the fuck is up? And now, why do I say that to you? Because if you didn't know, our very own Miss Pamela DeBar was on Mark Maron's hugely popular WTF podcast a few weeks ago. And if you haven't heard, well, you should. Not that I am in the habit of giving free advertising to Mark Maron, nor does he really need it from me, but it really was a great conversation and you should listen. Then... Come on back and find Pamela Daybar's Pajama Party on our very own Pantheon Podcast Network. She's the best, the coolest, and the world's most famous groupie. Okay. All right. Not a lot of business. Uh, I'll tell you I'll tell you after the interview why. Uh, except I do want to let everyone know about our latest show to join the network, and it's called Basic Folk. Now, Basic Folk is a podcast with honest conversations between musicians and folk radio veteran, your host, Cindy Howes. To better know her subjects, Howes approaches interviews with warmth, humor, and insightful questions. This podcast fosters the community of musicians discovered through Cindy's connections to Boston's wicked special folk scene and beyond. The popularity of folk music has crested and troughed with a wave of popularity in the 1990s, early 2000s. Sean Colvin, Patty Griffin, Annie DeFranco, uh, Gillian Welsh, uh, and also some men too, uh, they'll come up. Uh, Since then, up-and-coming musicians of this caliber are still creating great music, but many are not household names. As a seasoned curator of music, House wants to introduce you to what's next in the folk world and give you deeper insight on artists that you might know or are just getting to know. So please check that one out, Basic Folk. All right, folks, that's it for this week. On to the show. Well, diggers, this week is an entire Pantheon podcast episode. 
I'm going to do more of this, um, you know, introducing some of our other hosts. Um, yeah, and in a weird sort of way, it's already begun. You know, I had Martin Popoff uh, on as a guest, and now he's a host on the network with History and Five Songs. Um, now, that was uh, a little in the reverse, uh, him being a guest and then a host. Today, though, we are going to do it proper. Ty Listen is the host and one of the producers of the show, The Band A History, which you can find either on the main feed where all our shows come in the audio music magazine format, or you can find it in its own feed, the same as all of our shows. The Band A History is a show about the highly influential Canadian-American roots rock group, yes, known as The Band. Uh... Ty's show was created to introduce mostly new people to the richness of the band's music. It's done monthly, and they explore the band from their inception through their disbandment. Uh, the band History is here to provide a balanced look at their history, their albums, their concerts, their relationships with fellow musicians, and the group's brotherhood through success and failure. Ty is a film and live events producer located in Toronto, Canada, the perfect place for a guy who wants to dig deep and share all of it on the band, which was mostly filled with Canadians. All right, okay, let's get to it and learn all about Ty, his team, and more about the highly influential act that gets the moniker of the band. Here is Ty Listen. Ty, listen, welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually in Toronto yeah. interviewing you. Yes. Uh, it, it, this is your home base, right? This is the home base, yeah. And uh, I've never done an interview face-to-face -face like this. It's usually and online. And it's face-to-face, -face, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. On Skype or something Exactly. Like exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fun. By the way, beautiful city. Oh, thank uh, you. Appreciate here. it. Uh, there's a, it's a very musical city, isn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And long, long history. People don't know about it as much, but, yeah. uh, it's quite storied. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, uh, you know, I like to make a, uh, I, I got to interview, uh, Randy Bachman a couple of times mm -hmm. and, uh, he said something to me about Canada that just like blew my mind and made so much sense. And, uh, I said, you know, you know, it's funny It's you know, you, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Gordon Lightfoot, there's like all, you know, all these big Canadian legends. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? And he goes, well, when you get right down to it, it's that the cream rises to the top because it's such a pain in the ass to make it in Canada in the first place. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you just think about having to drive from one town like mm -hmm. Toronto to the next town, which is like 
hundreds of miles away in the dead of winter. Exactly. Only those with the the immense amount of passion and skill and talent are gonna, gonna make it. Make it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, yeah. that's 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 really smart. Yeah. You agree with that? A hundred percent. I just you know, I was going up to cottage country in Ontario here and I drove through Omimi, which is the town Neil Young was born in. Uh-huh. And you know, we took back roads all the way. We didn't take any highways or anything just because we're like, A, traffic, but B, let's just kind of drive through the country yeah. and see what it is. And, you know, these highways are newer. I believe Neil like ended up moving. I don't think he lived there his entire life, but just from Toronto to Omimi, it's just it's quite the trek. And if you're having to do that multiple times a week, just to play. Yeah, you're going to squash a lot of people's desire to want to do it. Exactly. Let alone go to, you know, Montreal or Ottawa or go, uh, you know, out west and hit those very sparse cities and Vancouver all the way down. Like it's not, you know, you can drive to Florida from Toronto in the same amount of time it takes to get to the other side of Ontario. Yeah. So it's that just shows you the vastness of the country and the requirement of a touring musician would have to have. So you agree with Randy 100% that this is what makes the the Canadian artists that did make it to the top such treasures. For sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Ty, your your podcast Mm -hmm. uh, is called The Band A History. Yeah. Um, You know, so I have to ask, uh, you know, the first question. Why couldn't a band come up with a better name? That's a great, you know, that's a great question. Um, wow. Serious question. Yeah. It, I don't even think they liked it. And, and here's the thing. When they were, they were the Hawks because they backed Ronnie Hawkins. And then they kind of just held that name over when they went out on their own. But um, they kind of became referred to as the band because they didn't really have a name. They were up in, you know, Woodstock around the Dylan time. And yeah, everybody just yeah. referred to them as the band. Their first contract with Capital has a different name. It actually, they signed as uh, the Crackers, which obviously isn't a very, uh, not then and definitely not now, a very politically correct name. Um, oh, you mean like white people? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, they also had, you know, other kind of more racy names. I think Richard talks a little bit about it in The Last Waltz, but the band is an interesting one because you'd think it'd be, it's kind of a pretentious name because you're saying you're the band, the only band. Yeah, yeah, the band. yeah. It is a rather pretentious. Yeah. 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 Some of the guys think it's the opposite, though, because they're they're not putting an identity towards what that is. They're not, you know, pretending to be anything. Robbie once gave an interview back in the early days, one of their first interviews. Uh, a lot of people called them the group or the band from music from Big Pink, like as if that was their name, not the album title. Right. And... Robbie's like, we're known by our Christian names, you know, Robert, you know, blah, 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 you know, Richard, yeah. you know, all these things like that. So it's like they didn't really want a name. They were kind of. It's well, kind I, think, of I think the people around Woodstock just referred to him as the, the band. band. Yeah. Uh, they were like they the were, hipsters yeah. of their time. You know, yeah. you kind of get infuriated with those types of people now. But like that's they were doing it first. They were doing it back then. Right, right, right. And, uh, and, and I believe they actually originate out of here. right? Yeah. In yeah. Toronto, right? Yeah. This is. This is the home base, you know, uh, four of the guys come from Canada, specifically Southern Ontario. Uh, and then you have Levon, obviously, from Arkansas. He's from the South. 
And, uh, you know, they played the circuit here with Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie Hawkins also being another Arkansas boy. He came up here. Found on, success. Yeah. Based yeah. off Conway Twitty told him to come up here. He said, you know what? You're going to get paid more. You're going to play shorter gigs. And they're going to appreciate you more because rockabilly was just becoming a thing here in yeah. Toronto in the 50s. Uh, and that's what happened. And they played Young Street. And this is this predates any of the Coffeehouse stuff, the Gordon Lightfoot, the Joni Mitchell stuff. They were playing mm-hmm. oh, some yeah. of these early oh, yeah. venues. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The band, you know, Robbie's from the area. He kind of grew up in the East End here. Um, But this was the home base, you know, and this is where they all kind of came together and really grinded it out for the first time together. All right. So so we'll get to back to the band in a minute. Yeah. But, uh, you know, let's talk about how you uh, got to doing a podcast uh, on this band. Uh, tell us uh, about your early musical education growing up, and and you are from the Toronto area yourself. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I, I grew up about an hour, you know, south of here, um, in a in a town called uh, Hamilton, uh, kind of like a post-industrial mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like a Buffalo or even you know, kind of something like that. So you know, came from like a working class type of area, and some of my first musical kind of memories were being in the the truck with my uncle um he listened to a lot of uh things that will put him in a certain age range he listened to a lot of u2 and he listened to a lot of dave matthews and he listened to a lot of that kind of stuff so uh, the first music i listened to and enjoyed and thought about was was probably dave matthews band and the interesting part is is those guys are such great musicians. His band, yeah. Carter Beaufort, you know, Boy Tinsley, guys like that are incredible musicians. And even though they're not the same at all, really, there is some similarities between what I kind of found to love in the band and what I love in Dave Matthews as well. Great musicianship. Yeah, right? exactly. Definitely. Individual uh, sound from each of those guys. Exactly. Very similar to Dave Matthews. I, I, yeah. I can I can see the justification uh, between the the two. Uh, uh, purely speaking on this this weird sort of sound that is made up of these unique individuals that then create a whole. Yeah, right. and it's it's somehow harmonious, even though you'd think when you put all those elements together, but they that shouldn't it would work clash. out on paper, right? Yeah, like you have you got jazz, <laughs> right. and you've got you've got rock, you've got some kind of like south african folk stuff in dave matthews case it's like all these things like what's the common thing here but when you put them in that melting pot it kind of all works out yeah 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 and you have a little musical background yourself yeah you know i've dabbled in music playing you know from an early age uh i remember just you know seeing malcolm young and angus young just watching their music videos and i love what they did so i picked up a guitar and i was bad at it but like those guys kind of got me in and I love music and I wanted to be like those guys um, just because of the craft I, I I have an obsessive personality in terms of like when I see something I want to try and do it really well so mm-hmm. I'll sit there and keep on working at it um, and but for me it was more than that I was fascinated with like how they wrote those songs so not only would I like listen to them or listen to a song I would try to dive deep into how did they get there? How did they write that song? What were they listening to? Where were they? Wow. You know, I'd go and get books. I'd buy them or get them out of the library uh, and start reading up on why. And, you know, it was just when I was kind of getting to that age around probably like 10 or 11, 
I, I had access to Google. So yeah. it's like you're going on in Wikipedia is a thing and you just start looking there and you can keep on going from there. And that that was kind of the start. And I've kind of dabbled in music off and on from from kind of a young age like that. Yeah, yeah it must be nice having, uh, you know, uh, all the information at your fingertips yeah. as a, opposed to us old guys who had to like, you know, trek to the library. Yeah. Find a book and then and then hopefully find another one that you might have to send out to get it, which would take weeks exactly. or things like that. That's what I, I, I was raised by my grandmother and we used to go to the library. And then when I found out this thing called Google exists, I was like, <laughs> Grandma, we got to get on this. You know, this is it's instant access here. Yeah. Google, Google. So now you're also uh, you are a filmmaker, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's your your day gig, if you will. Yeah, exactly. I, I produce predominantly uh, video uh, commercial stuff and I, I do live events too, large live events. And, you know, that 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 passion stems from the same thing. Always an artistic kid, uh-huh. music, um, drawing. I, you know, I would just as a kid, I didn't I, I played with cars and stuff, but my favorite activity was kind of coming home and getting a piece of construction paper and a marker or a pencil and just kind of drawing what I saw um, and kind of thinking about things from a visual perspective as well. Uh, and I was, I'm a visual, I'm a visual learner as well. So everything I, I kind of am always thinking about what photo to take, what picture to draw and things like that. So, you know, as I got a little bit older, uh, I realized, oh, I, I can maybe make some movies and I can start making some, uh, you know, some films. Mm-hmm. And this is also at the dawn. I'm lucky again. It's Did you big, do this like at the beginning of YouTube? or? Yeah, exactly. Like so, I, you know, where I was kind of coming of age for Google and online things like that, I was also coming of age to the digital camera revolution. Yeah. Uh, DSLRs and things like that. And mm-hmm. they were accessible and they were cheaper. And not that I had any, but like my friends did. And you could take did. a million pictures. Yeah. You don't have yeah. to be choosy. <laughs> exactly. So in YouTube 2006, um, I'm on YouTube. I'm watching things. I'm seeing things. I'm like, I can make these things. Uh, my friends and I would just do skits and comedy, stuff like that. And, uh, you know. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I remember the first visceral moment I had as a child, like that I remember is seeing Phantom Menace, Star Wars Phantom Menace. I was four. Um, And uh, that's always stuck with me. And that's what keeps me grounded when I think about why I wanted to do this. I'm like, there's there's a reason why I remember that as one of my earliest memories. So your earliest memory in filmmaking and motivation with The Phantom Menace? With the prequels. George Lucas and the prequels. I don't know if that's the best no. example, but... Uh, I loved, you know, you know, Jar Jar Binks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was just the kind of the grandiose scale. And then yeah. I went home and my, my uncle showed me the original trilogy. We had him on the VHS yeah. box yeah. set. Yeah, and hey, I, kids, sit down. Yeah, we, we got to watch talk. this, watch this. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, but then I was also coming, when I was in high school, that's when shows, television started really getting its footing. So yeah. you're getting- the gold, A new golden age of television. Yeah, yeah. you're getting The Sopranos, yeah. you're getting Oz, yeah. you're getting like all these great uh, shows. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, 
okay, I can, I'm, I'm, I kind of want to try this. I'm close to a hub in, mm-hmm. in filmmaking. A lot of stuff happens in Toronto, a lot of entertainment. Yeah, there's a lot of filming that's done in Toronto. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I went to school for film. I actually went to school originally because um, I like to write as well. It's kind of like this, this thing like talking about looking up history and facts and visual and I like writing. So I was like, let's put this together and to a degree. I, I might start doing film criticism. I feel like I could, I could excel well in that. So I started at a film studies program and it was, you know, probably halfway through that first year when I was watching hundreds of films, I'm like, yeah, I can do that better. Or um, I might want to try to take a stab at that too. I don't want to write as about opposed it. to writing about it. Right? Yeah, I don't necessarily always want to write about it. I want to try my hand at it. So then I kind of created a cohort of friends that I still work with today, and mm-hmm. we work on projects together. And that was kind of that. And having that kind of entrepreneurial spirit from the moment I picked up a camera. Not only am I wanting to create art, I'm like, how can I spin this into something where I can sustain myself and have a living Sell out of it? Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Oh, and then uh, you actually made a film uh, about uh, Richard, right? Yeah, so I made a film about Richard Manuel. Um, it's it's a few years old now. I was in my last uh, year of university. It was almost like my thesis type mm-hmm. project, yeah. and this was at the around the same time I was diving in um, to to the band but i had found out going to school i'm like i like documentary a lot uh, i like music uh, let's put those in movies together there's already movies about those two things but i kind of want to offer my perspective um and i thought about richard i had just seen a play from a local playwright who was doing like a community theater uh play of richard Manuel's life which i thought was fascinating started talking to him he started connecting me with some people it kind of started growing out of that and i made a short film about richard's um his legacy mm-hmm. uh and you know that went on circuit for a bit it was a few film festivals it never got a wide release mainly because of licensing reasons mm. you know you're Couldn't talking big the, money you're talking the, big uh, money yeah. and i didn't have the uh i didn't have the backing financially to do it so it sits on my hard drive now mm. and uh but it taught me one thing I take away from that. It's taught me a lot. It was a huge passion project. It was one of the first projects I ever did that was super emotional for me. Like I didn't know you could tie things like that emotion and art in such a way. Mm. So that was definitely uh, a great experience. So was that your introduction to the band? I'd been introduced to the band a little bit earlier. Um, you know, everybody's heard the weight before. Uh, yeah. it's a staple of yeah. you know it's a standard classic nowadays. rock yeah. radio. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't like it. You know, I, I did go through a phase um, where I was a lot more pretentious. I think everybody does about music and what they like and they didn't like. And I didn't like that sound. Really? I didn't like it. I didn't they were, I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to like dig deeper into that band mm-hmm. like I did with a bunch of others. Yeah. So, like ACDC. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, a, a local, my fiance, her small town. It was about another hour and a half outside of Toronto. They have this folk festival every year, small folk festival. And she's like, let's go to it. I'm like, sure. And I'm like, well, who's the headliner for this, you know, small folk festival? And she's like, okay, it's all, it's Garth Hudson. I was like, who's that? Oh, he's in the group, the band, you know, the song, the wait. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) that guy. (laughs) Okay. All right. Sure. So I did some research before. uh, And, you know, I saw, first of all, Garth's not even that featured in the weight it's because he's an organist yeah. mainly yeah. and like does some crazy cool stuff and that's that the, the weight isn't one of his songs per se yeah. and i was like okay that's this, robbie's yeah robbie's song yeah with with uh, levon with levon right. yeah so 
It's like, let me, you know, let me watch this guy. It was like, this guy's cool. We went. It was a great, he had a band around him. You know, he's really old now, but yeah. he, he put on a hell of a show behind that organ. And uh, that opened the floodgates because I heard some of their songs uh, that night and I, I was obsessed with Garth and then that kind of opened the door and then the play came around. I heard about the play. I'm like, oh, this is the band too. This is Richard. And it all kind of, you know, I don't necessarily believe in fate or anything like that, but this all kind of came together at the same time. And now looking back, the reason why I'm doing the podcast uh, is a lot more clear to me now. A lot of these pieces came together for me at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So now, uh, did, did you, you're a big fan of the Americana sound. Yeah, of course. So did the band introduce you to that or vice versa? Um, I, I'd say I was introduced to the Americana sound through a more modern approach. Obviously, all of that kind of stems back from these guys because they yeah, created Dave Matthews. It. Yeah, Dave Matthews. You can Matthews, kind of yeah. throw them in there a little yeah, bit and, on the outside. Of exactly. Yeah. And I listened to like, you know, a little bit of, you know, I listened to Dylan and I listened to the, some of the more folky side of mm -hmm. things as well. And um, I listened to, um, you know, some of the more, the newer ones like Old Chrome Medicine Show, like, cause they went through their heyday of popularity for yep. a little bit there. Yep. And then, so I was familiar with the genre. I liked it. Um, I liked the back to basics approach to it. Cause that was also around the same time I was kind of starting to explore the roots, the essence of music as we know it, like what were the original forms? Like we we're talking blues and we're talking jazz and country, Appalachia kind of, you know, original music. American, music. yeah, original okay. American music. Yeah. And, um, uh, that genre kind of captured all of that for me and distilled it together. And I like picking it apart. So I was introduced to the genre beforehand, but the band made sense. And as kind of the forefathers of that genre, uh, I was like, well, they're doing it the best. And I can see where a lot of people are trying to do it mm. like them, you know? Uh -huh. Yeah. So, yeah. So really, so, <clears throat> so, so you did know about Americana yeah, and then you were kind of gravitating towards that sound anyway. Yep. And then you basically found the source. Exactly. Oh, okay. exactly. Okay. Which, right. you know, it, it was interesting. I, I was usually the other way around. If I saw something that on the radio that I liked, or I listened to a, you know, a friend's band or whatever, mm -hmm. I was usually the opposite. I was like, okay, this is cool, but let me go back and let me trace back where their history is from and like why they're listening to this genre and like what they're offering. And I would start back. So if I listened to, some modern day country musician i'm like well i'm gonna go back and start listening to like hank first and some of those guys i was always more well this is that. no different than what you did with acdc exactly okay yeah exactly right. so um the band At 10 kinda, or 11 yeah, yeah. exactly so yeah. the band kind of came away uh, or came into my life in a little bit of a different path but still it was uh, interesting well they're worthy of any attention they get mm -hmm. but why did you decide to make a, a podcast uh, retelling their history yeah, that's that's a great one. Um, I feel like the band uh, was a significant part of changing the course of rock history uh, in the 60s and the late 60s. I think every commercial band that people know about today uh, was directly inspired by the band in some way. You look at the later Beatles albums, you look at the, the Stones kind of really hitting their heyday in the early 70s there. You take a look at a number of those artists during that era, George Harrison, Eric Clapton, all those guys, they were taking influence. Uh, they're a musician's band more than they are a commercial entity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you have things, products out there like The Last Waltz and you know, somebody like Robbie's known. But um, I thought that it was an interesting thing to tap into because I wanted to explore it with people that 
you know some of your favorite Stones albums or some of your favorite Beatles songs or whatever. What well, are they're, they rooted they're a constant. In? Yeah, know, exactly. Exactly. Maybe the band is not. Exactly. Right. So I wanted to explore that for my own personal satisfaction too. It's like, I like this. Let's try to do two things with it. While I learn even more, which I felt like I had a good base knowledge, but I'm like, as I learn and research more, let's also put that out for other people. Cause I'm sure there's somebody else else out there that wants to know a little bit more too Mm -hmm. so that's Mm -hmm. that was kind of the inception of it also i thought there was a lot of media out there that i didn't like i didn't agree with not that it was good but there's certain books about the band or or things like that that i didn't think did it justice or gave a fair and balanced approach so i was trying to create a product from the the get-go like to create a podcast that um you know you're going to be biased that you can't stay away from that but i want to remain yeah yeah. yeah, i want to remain fairly central and Mm -hmm. i wanted to give a lot of history and i wanted to make it fun but i also wanted to get the perspective of the guys that didn't really get to have a chance to give their perspective so especially those other than robbie Robbie levon levon yeah Yeah. like and you know this is a group that i think all parts are equal and are as equally as important so somebody like garth who is the foundation of their sound yeah you don't have a lot out there about him yeah rick sang a lot of their most popular songs and is a great bass player. You don't hear a lot from him. Richard, uh, Levon said he was the lead singer of the band, piano player. He also drummed a lot on their stuff. He had an amazing voice, died in yeah. the 80s. So it's like yeah. he didn't really have his time either to yeah. talk about it. So I'm like, I kind of want to do justice and bring it back full circle as best I can here. He's like, we know Levon, we know Robbie, we know about their feud too. I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus uh, on them as a unit and how they were all equally as amazing and created something that was truly unique, mm-hmm. uh, which I felt like hadn't been really talked about that much. So, so tell us about making the podcast. How sure. do you go about it? I mean, obviously you got to start with research, right? So it probably begins with a lot of books. Yeah. You know, I have what I call my primary sources, a few books that I uh, visit regularly. Obviously I visit their biographies, Robbie Robertson's testimony and Levon Helms, this wheels on fire. Uh, there's some other great resources. Two, two very famous uh, books in the rock and roll pantheon. Exactly, exactly. And then Barney Hoskins, who's um, he's a writer. He's written he he's written a lot about that era and the Woodstock type of thing. He wrote a book called Across the Great Divide, which is about the band. Um, and those are kind of some of my primary texts. There's also a lot out there. I I spent a lot of time digging through archives and digging through popular music magazines uh, of the time to find information. Um, there's some great resources out there online as well. There's a one website called theband.hiof. Uh, and I think it was one guy or girl originally who just started compiling everything they could on the band. So I find clippings of Okay, I'm going to sound really dumb, but H-I-O-F? Yeah, I don't know what that means. Oh, glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, I don't know what that means. And Somebody out there in podcast land is will going, tell us. it means this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and they have clippings of, if they played in Boston in 70, they have every review that came out after that show. And oh, really? that's actually oh. a great resource because you get a lot of repetition, like, oh, they sound amazing. This is the band with four Canadians and one American. But then sometimes there's quotes from them or certain things that they did like Richard yelled out this line to the crowd or even kind of and I don't always do this but you know Robbie was wearing a purple shirt that night and he was playing this guitar little tidbits that you can kind of start piecing together Mm -hmm. Um, so a ton of research to begin with Mm -hmm. Um, 
I primarily do that. I have some help. Uh, I believe this is a family. Affair, it is. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, you know, my fiance, she edits uh, the podcast quite a bit. She's a professional um, editor, works in television and, and online digital content. Um, and my soon to be mother-in-law researches too. She's, she's a huge uh, support on the show. Um, it's kind of, I'm a control freak though with this. Yeah. It, she's, she used to be an educator. Right? Yeah. Yeah. She was, so. she did a lot of like, she, her backgrounds in like, um, in, in actually like in science and things like yeah, that research. research. Yeah. So, um, so I'm a control freak though. So usually at the end of the day, I start everything or at least end it all. Um, and I also enjoy it a lot. So I, I research a ton and then I go into, um, recording it. Uh, the interesting thing about the show, too, is I try to source clips that I can further supplement my argument or uh, an era to further paint it. So uh, if, I, if I'm if i talking about a certain era in the band, if I can try to find some of the limited stuff out there from Robbie or Levon or some of the other guys to enter, uh, insert their clips into there. Or if I'm talking about a certain show, I try to go find the bootleg audio from that show and try to include that just so we can kind of further get into uh, what it sounded like exactly there in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um and that, you know that takes a long time too, finding those clips and uh, putting it, uh, putting it together. And uh, you know, I do it all. I, I also I'll edit it, I'll mix it. I like I put it out originally. What about interviews and you know talking to actually yeah. some of the people who were there, yeah, including sure. the surviving members? Yeah, for sure. Uh, at this of which point, I think there's only two. Two. There's only two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Garth Hudson and Robbie Robertson. Um, a lot of the information that. I haven't conducted what I would consider formal interviews that I've used for this show, uh, though I do talk to a lot of people mm-hmm. and I use yeah. information from that. I yeah. do want as, to get, as primary source. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I want to get into interviewing and putting that out on the show. Uh, I have I've been working with uh, Daniel Rohr is a friend of mine. He just directed the new Robbie documentary that premiered at TIFF. Uh, I'm going to be talking to him and putting that out because I also find that while it doesn't necessarily follow what would be the normal trajectory for the podcast in terms of me like doing a historical retelling, there is stuff there that people will want to listen to. And he knows a lot of information. He's a great resource on the band. So people will take something from that. Uh, I also like interviewing people. Mm -hmm. I like, you know, kind of talking about it and finding anybody else who likes the band as much as I do is always great. And other people will like that as well. No, that's very cool. Very cool. All right. So um, I think uh, I distilled the history of the band into the Ronnie Hawkins years, Dylan, uh, the band from 68, Big Pink, uh, Thanksgiving 76, and then the aftermath. Yes. Um, So let's get your quick synopsis on each. Mm -hmm. Uh, That will give the the diggers a, a little trailer for the current and upcoming yeah. episodes. So obviously we've got to start with the Hawk. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah. Ronnie Hawkins is at least here considered kind of the he's grand- like a hero. In yeah. The he's a grandfather yeah. of rock Canadian rock and roll music. Um, yeah. He established and helped find a lot of the musicians that we talked about earlier on here in the podcast and like helped a lot of these guys and girls out. Uh, and he had a lot of the legendary musicians of the time in his band at one point yeah. or another. Obviously, all the members of the band. He had people like John Till that went on to play with Janis Joplin. He had a lot of these people. And 
Ronnie Hawkins figured it out from a business standpoint, running the kind of Southern Ontario down the East Coast circuit. And um, he was uh, a feisty character. He was. He's still alive. He's still alive. (laughs) So let's not say he was. Yeah. No, you know what? I saw him a few weeks ago and he's as feisty as ever. (laughs) Yeah. At 80. I think he's 80 something years old. 80 something years old. Yeah. And he. Quite the performer. He'll live forever. That guy, he's he's kind of like a Keith Richards uh, character. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing's going to kill him. Exactly. And he was like the controversial version of like an Elvis. Yeah. Like even more so, at least in yeah, the early years. Yeah, yeah, Because like they came up around the same place and around the same time. And, and Ronnie Hawkins did another thing mm-hmm. uh, different from those guys. And he, uh, he taught them a lot. He taught them the road. He taught them how to be musicians. Mm-hmm. A lot of those guys. Well, they're, they're younger guys. Yeah, like 16. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he, I think he kind of favored that because uh, uh, that, he could then kind of control it. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And any of the guys that kind of were a little bit bigger, like Fred Carter Jr. was in the band for a little bit when mm-hmm. Robbie was in the band, they leave quick. Yeah, you know? yeah, because they don't want to be told by Ronnie what to do all the time. Exactly. Even though, you know, Ronnie's putting on the show, he's got a vision, and mm-hmm. he's trying to make that happen. So Yeah, and those guys... They did what the Beatles did, then you know their hundred th- or their ten thousand hours yeah. uh, with with the Hawk, and it got to a point where uh, they were tired of playing rockabilly. It was a little bit kind of going out of favor. It was going out of style. Yeah, uh, he yeah. also had pretty strict rules about girlfriends and drug use and, and all this time. Like they wanted to smoke weed and yeah. bring their girlfriends to the show. Yeah, because this like, this is early sixties. Yeah, this is early sixties, and yeah. and Ronnie's like no. Also, he was also. Um, kind of setting up with the family and towards the end he wouldn't show up to all the gigs so basically you have richard singing everything and it's richard and ronnie's getting paid and ronnie's getting paid (laughs) the big sum but over the course of this time he put these guys together first starting with levon yeah then getting robbie yeah then you know getting rick and richard and then getting garth was the kind of crown jewel of this whole operation all these southern or these uh, southern ontario boys all young 16 17 18 uh you know rick didn't play bass when he joined the band he played guitar uh, richard was just a singer and he learned how to play piano so they were kind of flexing their musical muscles in a professional bar setting here just playing sometimes in great places sometimes playing in places that you never want to step foot in all underage you know all driving these Cadillacs up and down, you know, the East Coast. It was a very weird thing, but part of what it meant to be a musician. Though. Oh, no, that was freedom uh, back yeah. then. You know, it was still it was a fairly new thing to be able to travel those distances. Yeah. And if you could figure out a way to make a living at it, you know, you get to see the world and have a good time. You know, exactly. All at, the, all, all at the same time, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, they had their falling out, but the Hawks, the Hawk and, and the band always remained together because you know it, it was a brotherhood in some ways yeah, for them and yeah. he, the hawk shows up at other points in their career so he yeah. does yeah including at the last world including so. at the last world yeah um so how how did that end that ended when really it was i think it was robbie and levon they were like we're levon was kind of the head of the boys there because yeah. they you know and and, and well, Rob, he was the first he was the first yeah. and um and him and Robbie became best friends. Mm. They were like brothers and they had dreamed about, you know, let's go out and try it on our own. Like any kid would, they're in their early twenties now. And they're like, that's the time any kind of young 
guy wants to start trying out their own thing. Well, especially after they've done their 10,000 hours. Yeah, and they feel like they're, you know, top of the world. They yeah. play the best shows. They play. Yeah. They're, they're being they can kick anybody's ass. They're being yeah. considered the best white blues band out there. Yeah. So they're like, okay, uh, we're going to do it by ourselves. And because, Ryan, you're not going to let us live our style of life and you don't seem that interested in what we want to do, uh, we're going to go try to do it on our own. And they left and they realized that it wasn't, necessarily that easy you know they're playing you're starting from the bottom again yeah and like you had to build up your circuit there's a reason why ronnie hawkins was successful he built his circuit it's like building a business and yeah those clubs know him he's a known commodity these guys aren't so yeah you might be ronnie hawkins old band but like can you do it without him i yeah we don't know we don't uh, know so we'll call you when we have an open spot uh, yeah you know so they again, struggled start, they struggled yeah. for you know a year or two they tried to do the same circuit but really what they found out was we're not really doing anything different than we were doing with ronnie because we don't have enough money to get in the studio and cut things mm-hmm. though they did a little bit and a lot of that early stuff uh, is is the same old rockabilly blues type stuff. It's not the band. They hadn't grown into it. They hadn't grown into it. They needed another character they to need come another. In, uh, and do that. So, uh, you know, obviously we got to talk about, uh, you know, our illustrious uh, Nobel uh, laureate, uh, Mr. Dylan. Yeah. Um, so uh, he, h- how did they come together? Right. So I, I guess that is the $64,000 question. Yeah, exactly. Um so Dylan, there's a couple of stories, but Dylan went electric, right? He was thinking about going electric, I guess. David Crosby said that he's the reason why uh, Dylan went electric because he saw the birds yeah. and the birds were, you know, doing great things. Doing his song. Yeah, doing his song. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I can do that. I can do that. I can do it better. <laughs> yeah. um, well, especially and, the birds. <laughs> exactly. But Dylan was this folk, like this un, like, you know, he... He was this huge factor in folk music. Oh, and, God, yeah. And yeah, he's, he's gonna, already a giant star yeah. in the folk world, which yeah. was huge at the time. Exactly. Yeah. So he's going to like Yeah, but then, uh, you know, February 9th, 1964, the world changes, hit yeah. by a meteor. Exactly. All the dinosaurs are dead, and we need to start again. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So I'm talking about the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Exactly. In case anybody's wondering. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and. You know, I think Dylan has always been provocative in trying to change his sound, whether it's been popular or not. Right. I mean, going yeah. electric wasn't the last time he did that. Yeah. Uh, we don't talk about the, the uh, Christian no. years. Yeah. In the, in the, yeah. yeah. We, like yeah. the weird gospel. Yeah. Yeah. But he's always kind of changed it up. And he put a band together. He not busy being born is busy dying. Exactly. So he put a band together, mainly made out of Paul Butterfield band. Yeah. Uh, to play, start playing these massive stadium shows. And the thing about... Uh, that was he's testing it out he's never really played electric guitar so this is new for him too they do these shows they get booed at the same time uh, the band's doing a residency at Tony Martz in New Jersey and you know they're known in the area the New York area New York New Jersey area and uh, I believe it was originally Albert Grossman or Bob Dylan's assistant that Bob Dylan's manager Albert Grossman yeah found uh found out about these guys and you know they went and listened to them and they approached Levon and Robbie about coming out because Paul Butterfield band was there but they were also some session musicians and they didn't want to tour they didn't want to do they wanted to go back in the studio and make their money exactly sleep in their own beds exactly so Levon and Robbie were like well 
like we don't want to break up the band, but this is a cool opportunity. Let's do it. So they started striking up a friendship with Dylan, and they started playing uh, these these two shows. They played one in New York, and then they played one in L.A., I believe. And it was great. And Dylan was like, well, do you want to come out? We're going to do a world tour. And they're like, only if you bring the rest of the guys. Dylan sees the rest of the guys. Oh, they're amazing, too. You got Garth Hudson on organ. You got Richard, great singer. Rick, solid bassist. We'll take him out on the road thing with that though is we return to this idea of dylan being this folk guy and now you have this kind of ominous unknown electric act behind him they weren't well liked people would throw things at them they were booed off the stage managed yeah even. famously don't look back uh tour of england yeah uh, you know you you get a lot of that yeah and I think this was the most crucial period for the band because it taught them how to deal with extreme negativity. It taught them how to deal in some part with fame. Uh, it taught them how to write because Dylan's one of the greatest. Yeah. So, you know, you got. Well, and also that's what brought them to Woodstock and Big ex- Pink. Exactly. Because. You know, Bob got in the motorcycle accident. Exactly. He was stuck up there. Yeah. Or he retired up there, depending on the story. And uh, and they kind of followed, right? Yeah, they kind of followed. And um, when they're up there, there's not there's nothing there's nothing to do but so, play music. But play music. Yeah. So they get their clubhouse. They famously they had a typewriter. Yeah. At, at Big Pink, you know, Dylan would write down a few lyrics. Rick would come up, write down some things. Richard would come up. Robbie would come up. And that's how you have songs, co-written songs like Tears of Rage by Richard and Bob Dylan, This Wheel's on Fire, which is a Rick and Bob Dylan tune. Um, And they just kind of jammed it out. A lot of those songs were originally for Dylan, which he sold um, uh, to other artists and and things like that. But then they're like, well, you know, Dylan, he's not going to go on tour anytime soon. We're kind of up here. Let's... Let's write our own music. Let's get our own deal. Robbie and Rick were especially very interested in getting their own deal. And Albert Grossman's like, okay, I guess. And they got him a deal. I guess I'll manage you. Yeah, I'll get get you a deal. I'll get you a deal. And they got him a deal with Capitol Records. Yeah. Uh, And along with Capitol Records comes somebody who we got a chance to interview uh, here on Deeper Digs. Mm -hmm. And that's John Simon. John Simon, yeah. Uh, I think that's a pretty crucial moment as well with that. John Simon, yeah, he, uh, for all intents and purposes, and at least in my opinion, was a, the was the was an additional member, yeah. kind of like he uh, so wanted to be in that yeah, band. Exactly, I mean, he's more than willing. He to said tell that, you. Yeah. yeah, kind of like George Martin, the Beatles, and yeah. things like that. It's like the yeah. producer was a fundamental piece of that equation. Yeah, yeah, and he was an arranger. He was an expert player as yes. well, um, and he. The best thing you can say about John and you get this one reading his book or listening to him talk is he was able to kind of take all these characters and like what they were doing in their craziness and kind of helping distill it into something that would work. He was the cohesive element of that and brought it all together. And you notice, you know, after he doesn't produce their albums anymore, arguably to a lot of people, it's not as good anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think he was a very crucial underappreciated part. And he, got the trust of the band because again it's a brotherhood yeah he wasn't in it for the reasons that they were scared of like somebody to push them around or tell them what to do or you know we got to make a lot of money we got to make a commercial no, he record. literally was just trying to get the best out of each of these guys yeah. to put on record exactly and he was really successful he was really that. successful at it so yeah. then you have that 
you know, out of out of that workshopping, out of those long winters in upstate New York and yeah. writing basement and, tapes, basement and tapes, that, yeah. and that you get music from Big Pen. Yeah, 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 yeah. which is a game changer, massive game. Yeah, changer. Uh, not a huge seller. No, um, but it's uh, almost like the Velvet Underground uh, again. Not mm-hmm. a big seller, um, but just huge influencer. Uh, it, you know, and especially more so with the band. Uh, you know, a, uh, a musician's band, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe not the average audience jumped at Big Pink, but all the mu- big musicians at the time had that in their collection. Yeah. Like George Harrison's like, what, what is this? Clapton's like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm done this with is cream. as close to authentic as it can be. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, I think uh, uh, it's known that, um, uh, that, um, uh, that cream kind of, Left Clapton, left Cream because of, of the, band. the band. He wanted to join them too. Everybody wanted to <laughs> Everybody join these was, guys. How many people can be in this band? Yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, I did ask John uh, about uh, about him. You know, asking if he could be in the band. He yeah. goes, I I pleaded, I asked, and finally one day, Robbie sat me down and said, John, we already got two keyboard players. Yeah, because that's his primary instrument. Yeah, his yeah exactly. keyboard. You know, and he was like, mm, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly enough for anybody, not to go off too far, but anybody interested in what that might have sounded like, uh, Last Summer, which was, uh, which was a uh, movie that came out either in 69 or 70, uh, John Simon did the soundtrack for that yeah. album. Yeah, because he, he does a lot of soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. And a couple of those songs are the band Minus Robbie uh, w- with him singing lead, at least, or Coley with uh, Levon. And it sounds like the band, but it was just with John Simon. It's... If anybody wants to know what that sounds Ooh. like, it's there. It's out there. I just did an episode on it, but it's online. You can find it on YouTube too, the soundtrack. And it's amazing. Actually. Nice little nugget. Yeah, nice for sure. Nugget. All right. So they go on. They continue to make several albums yeah. in the 70s. They tour constantly, Yeah, which is part of the problem that it gets us to the, the last waltz here. Um, and, uh, you know, to your point, I think there were some albums that were not great but then they come back and begin to focus again i think you know like everything you you know you have the the rock star life yeah you have drugs and drink and women and song and Mm -hmm. uh you lose focus and uh they kind of you know didn't ever hit the big time right yeah they never they never did quite hit the big time uh in in the way that some of their peers did um Interestingly enough, uh, you know, with with the with the Brown album, that was their probably commercial peak for all intents and purposes, yeah, which is the, the second, second album. album. Yeah. Uh, it's not a more straightforward sound, but it definitely included tracks that that we come to love today, like up on Cripple Creek and things like that. They're not standard rock songs, but they are more in line with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, drugs and alcohol, you're talking about a lot of kids and you see this with athletes today, too. I've got, got some play on album-oriented rock. Exactly. You see this with athletes athletes today, too. When you're starting to be, you're, you're being handed millions of dollars mm-hmm. for the first time ever, you start getting a little crazy. You don't know how to save your money. Nobody's really there to help you out. Yeah. You're a small country boy. You don't really know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, now you're surrounded by people who want to give you things, want yeah. to be your or friend. Or take things from you. Or take you. things yeah. from you. Oh, yeah, you know, you want a little heroin? Like, it's my, it's my treat <laughs> yeah. this time. You get hooked to it. Yeah. You're a party animal, yeah. you know. So that's what happens to the band. And, you know, they made some great stuff. They made uh, Stage Fright, uh, which was kind of their 
they took over the reins at that point in terms of producing it. But mm-hmm. that's when heroin hit cahoots, which is, um, for all intents and purposes, like it's a decent album, but the production's awful on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did Moondog Matinee, which, which is their matinee, which is their covers album, which I think is a very underrated covers album. Um, but they kind of, uh, and then they went and did a, an album with Dylan called Planet Waves in 74, and they did a joint tour, which was really successful. They played stadiums. Yeah. But the guys were in the drugs then. And, yeah. you know, Richard was like, basically, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, he's strung out all the time. Uh, nobody really wants to write anymore. Robbie now has kind of become the, very much the primary writer. I'm like, I can't, I can't hold it all together. No, and he could just go and have a solo career. And exactly. I'm sure people are in his ear saying, go do a solo career. And, and, the other, and the other guys too. You'll notice this with any band. When you start getting some success, you all lawyer, you all lawyer up. And you all manage up and you all have people in your ear telling you, oh, you can go off and do this. Yeah. Levon, you're singing their biggest songs. You go off and do your own thing. Right. Richard, you have a voice like Ray Charles. Yeah. You don't need those guys. Rick, you're a character. You're a great guy. They'll love you. out. So, Robbie, you're an amazing songwriter. You could go do it on your own. You have all these things kind of coming together. And they, they agreed early on, too, that they weren't going to tour a lot. And then what do you what happens? They you tour. Yeah, tour, tour to make money. Right. And they're touring and they're seeing their friends die. They're seeing their peers die. They're seeing Janis Joplin die. They're seeing Jimi Hendrix die. Um, and that spooks at least Robbie the most. He gets a little, he gets a little scared of that. And at least in part, he starts formulating a plan to kind of be like the Beatles. He's like, let's get off the road. Let's just go back and be a studio band again. Because for all intents and purposes, that's what they were on their first two albums because they didn't tour until after yeah, the second album yeah, came out. Yeah. And, you know, we'll workshop. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll start workshopping. We'll make some some stuff in the studio and we'll make our money off of that. And we'll just kind of live on. They always were doing other projects. They were always doing other things. We'll just do it that way. Not everybody saw eye to eye on that. And that's kind of where you get the last waltz, where you get a product that is this very influential documentary uh big production that's an understatement yeah yeah one of the most influential yeah rock documentaries of all time yeah, yeah. and you have uh an all-star director you've got all-star, martin scorsese yep you've got all-star talent you along got, with the band yeah. yeah you've got all their friends from clapton uh to locals like um neil young and joey yeah. mitchell and things like that van put, morrison van uh, morrison even uh, diamond uh, ferlinghetti comes in yep. and uh uh, uh, gives a, a poetry reading. Exactly. Uh, uh, you have uh, Thanksgiving dinner for uh, six thousand people. Six thousand people yeah. at uh, yeah, Winterland. At Winterland yeah. uh, Ballroom uh, in San Francisco. So put on by Bill Graham. Yeah. So you've got all this culmination in this, um, and it, it got bigger and bigger. It originally was supposed to just be a farewell concert at the first place they played as a band together, but then yeah, it became Thanksgiving and then it became a film and then it became a film that let's try shooting it on 35 millimeter for the first time because that's never been done. Let's put out a soundtrack album. Let's go back in and do studio work. Yeah. Uh, and put I it, think they, had the, they brought the Staples thing. They brought the Staples in. Yeah. They did Emmy Lou Harris. Yeah, and they and also Lou, recorded yeah. some songs that are on the vinyl uh, when the double album or it might be even a triple album last waltz was released, which some of them are new. Mm-hmm. 
like the well and out of the blue and stuff. And they're amazing, which mm -hmm. is the sad part because these guys could still kill it. Yeah. They could still kill it. Yeah. Um, well, and that's the rub is, yeah. you know, they may have packed it in too a little too early. Yeah. And, you know, they never yeah. came back together like no, was originally And, and, and this is what creates the the giant rift mm -hmm. between Levon and, uh, and, and Robbie. Robbie right? Yeah. You know, they didn't see eye to eye when it came to things like songwriting. And, you know, the band for very much for all of them was a... Uh, a workshop type environment. We're all working on things together. And then when the credits came out after a while, the first two albums are a little bit more evenly split. You know, Richard was also a big writer in the early days and him and Robbie, I always like to talk about this because I think people need to understand it a little bit better is that Richard Emanuel and Robbie Robertson individually, but together were some of the greatest songwriters. It's like a Lennon McCartney. It's like a uh, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, these yeah. two were on each other's wavelength. Yeah. And they wrote some yeah. amazing songs together. That started to dissipate. And when that dissipates, you know, you're not going to get a great product or the product that you're happy with. The, the, the whole is larger than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Right? And you can tell because, you know, they did get back together minus Robbie. But when they did their solo careers, they didn't reach, uh, from a musical standpoint, it's never it was never as good as anything the band did. And I'll put that out there. And I would tell any of them that to their face today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Levon won Grammys, mm -hmm. which is amazing. He's the only, you know, the only guy that he's run three oh, Grammys. Robbie had some chart success. Yeah, uh Blue Train or yeah. whatever that song is. Uh he had some success. I think that was a platinum album or a platinum song. So he had some success too. And Rick, you see a little bit of it in the last waltz. He put out that solo album, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's actually a great album. But yeah, this is a group that was better as one than they were on their own. And, uh, you know, they came back together and made some great albums. I think Jericho in the 90s, again, Richard had died at this point, but it never was what it was. Yeah. 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 All right. So I, I understand um, because I have inside knowledge. Yeah. You are on the Pantheon Network uh, that uh, you'll be divide, devoting entire episodes uh, to each of the band members as yeah. well. So let's talk that uh, talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, each member. Wow. Okay. So well, yeah. here let, we'll, we'll just we'll put them in order. Okay. Uh, sure. Of uh, of their appearance uh, mm -hmm. in, into that. So obviously we have to start with Levon Helm, the yeah. the uh, the drummer who who not only drums, vocals, mandolin, and guitar. Mm -hmm. So he's a multi instrumentalist. Yeah, of course. Levon Helm was the heart of this group. He, yeah, was the founding member. And, and, you know, he, a lot of people don't realize he left the Dylan tour uh, early on. And yeah, went, went back to the oil derricks. Went, yeah. He went out, actually, actually out, uh, out on the coast of Louisiana. And almost killed himself. Yeah. Uh, working in these dangerous environments. Um, but Levon Helm, recognizable voice. Uh, he, when I think the, a lot the, of... The authentic Southern... Yeah. Uh, um, uh, experience and um, uh, that they were looking for. Yeah. Uh, they got a bit of that from Ronnie as well, who mm -hmm. again, you know, was born and raised in Arkansas, yeah. dirt, porn, dirt, dirt farmer, uh, just like uh, Levon's family as well, yeah. like a Johnny Cash, like an Elvis Presley. Exactly. It all fits in the, the same sort of, of muck uh, yeah. there that they rise out of. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's always been the case, but it's been very popular music to try to hide where you're from. Uh, 
And when you have an accent and you sing, it's not popular. A lot of people hide their accent if you're not the Beatles. True. Um, uh, well, it, you know, it's a the, yeah. The the pop expectation yeah, exactly. is uh, you know the the common uh, sort of uh, non-accent, uh, yeah. if you will. He went the other way. Yeah, he did. Uh, didn't he? And he sings multiple anthems. You know, the way. Uh, oh, the night they drove old Dixie down. Drove old Dixie down. Like these are staples. Yeah, it's uh, that damn thing. Sounds like it uh, was written during the yeah, Civil exactly. War. Yeah, exactly. So you've got you've got him. Uh, Levon was always interested in being a good showman. He was interested in bringing something authentic and wholesome, bringing something from his childhood. Uh, the traveling shows, mm-hmm. the uh, the influences, the 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 you know the black influences to the music and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and always a character always interested in being better he went back like we're talking about a guy who is being called one of the best drummers in the world go back to berkeley to learn how to drum over again because like i can be better i can do this better Mm -hmm. um i can be a better mandolin player i can play guitar um all these things and he's the most if any member is the most consistent um from the day he stepped foot in the Hawks to the day he died, it was it was Levon Helm. He was the most consistent musician and showman out of all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The backbone of the, the backbone. Yeah, the backbone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the only American. The only American. Yeah, which yeah. is yeah, which is interesting too. Uh, hence, you yeah. know, when you talk about the Americana sound, yeah, yeah, yeah. They mean North Americana sound. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, then uh, we got to go with the kid. Uh, who's the second yeah. in the band, yeah. uh, and that is the primary songwriter. Yeah. Uh, and you must have an affinity to him because, you know, I, I figured this out uh, early on is that you know he wrote in such cinematic ways, and mm-hmm. I and I've read his, his uh, 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 explanation that he purposefully did that. He he himself was influenced by film, right? And the, we're talking about Robbie Robertson. Yeah, yeah. Robbie Robertson. Yeah, love and movies. guitars and vocals. Yeah love movies Mm -hmm. uh he was known to you know when he was living in new york uh uh, he'd send somebody or he'd go down to himself there was this one book a bookstore that would sell the screenplays and he'd read that he would just read screenplays he's like i don't want to read a normal book i want to read a screenplay to see how my favorite movie was made and he had affinity for these directors and the way that they were telling stories he's like well i'm not a movie maker per se but i want to take those sensibilities and translate them into songs not an easy task no uh, not to, an easy task to, at all you know when when you have uh you know uh, uh, 200 pages mm-hmm. uh to explain a story in three acts and then to be able to distill that down into three minutes four yep. minutes yep that's it, pretty incredible exactly so you have a guy who much harder job yeah you've got a guy who uh, early on was trying to tell these stories and he so happened to be surrounded too by some of the best musicians there were and collaborators to create this music because you know robbie grew up in the city who's he going to talk to about writing a song about the civil war well it's a leave on mm-hmm. who's he going to talk to about help craft a song about traveling shows well leave on like these guys worked on these things together and then that's outside of the partnership of him and Richard writing. Songs well, I together. think that was a, another rub uh, yeah. with Levon yeah. is that uh, this was so collaborative. Yeah, um, it it seemed unfair to um, at least to Levon mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that these were known as Robbie's songs as opposed to a group effort. Yeah, and and he fought and it, 
not even for himself. And in his opinion, he was not only fighting for rights to songs so his name were on them, but he was also saying guys like Rick and Garth should be getting those credits too. Um, which, yeah, again, that's a whole other can of worms. But Robbie also, I think a lot of times, uh, early on when he was in the Hawks, he was considered one of the best kind of guitar players. But I think a lot of that's kind of been put aside and people focus on Robbie as a songwriter. He was a, and he was a great player. They never were interested in these crazy elite solos, but he is an amazing player on those Taste. tracks. Tasteful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and rooted in the influences of blues right. and country where it's not about how many notes you play, no, it's, it's about, about how you play them. Exactly. It's, um, it's about what you're saying. Exactly. Are you telling a story with the lead just as you do with the lyrics. Yeah, and they built, the band built an amazing rhythm section. You've got usually Richard uh, on piano and you've got Rick on bass and you've got Levon on drums and you've got him on guitar and the lead instrument a lot of times actually Garth, uh, but you're filling that in and you're like, every song they're also concerned, which is interesting because they're not a popular group or they weren't a pop group, but they were always concerned a lot of times about how danceable their songs were. Like, they wanted the groove like a lot of their favorite kind of records from like Motown, things like that. So they were always interested in that. So, yeah, Robbie, Robbie, you know, he's been a consistent force. He's still around. He was the only guy that was really ever wanting to talk about things. These guys were private. They were they were, you know, mountain men type farmer types. They didn't want to talk to the press and trust people. And Robbie was kind of the. The spokesman. Yeah, he was yeah, kind of thrust yeah. into that role as a spokesman. And he kind of took that. Well, he. Probably the best looking guy in the band too. Yeah, easy yeah. on the eyes. Yeah, That's he no was surprise. easy on the yeah. eyes for sure. Yeah. 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 All right. So uh, my favorite uh, player in, in the band yeah. is Rick Danko. Yeah, Rick Danko. Rick Danko, he's kind of got a little bit of everything. Rick is a very underrated bass player. He's a very um, melody-driven bass player. Yeah. He's not playing your standard root fifth kind of stuff. He's, he's driving it forward. Uh, he's a great, he's actually a great songwriter too. Um, an amazing high tenor mm-hmm. voice. Yeah. Sing some of their nicest ballads. Uh, it makes no difference in the last waltz is, uh, I think a very tear inducing performance. Um, and he was a showman too. You know, yes. he also early on, he, him and Rob were like, let's get business done. Yeah. Let's, let's put a great band together. Let's get a record, uh, contract going. Let's do all of that. And, um, Rick worked hard until he died too. He did multiple bands and did multiple projects and toured a lot. And yeah, he, he died on the road, uh, too, right? Yeah. He, I, I believe he actually, I had believe he was at, at home, but yeah, he was touring all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he got quite, um, overweight and died of a heart attack. I think, I think with Rick, it was consumption too. and never quite let up. I think he lived a pretty hard life pretty much until he died. So, um, but again, everybody loved Rick. Yeah, yeah. Played fiddle as well. Played a mean fiddle on Rag Mama Rag. <laughs> Not so much in the last waltz in some of the interview clips. He was he was pretty out there there. But yeah, great fiddler. Um, and he could play guitar too. He played guitar yeah. quite a bit, especially yeah. when the band came back. Well, as you said, he started off as a guitar exactly. Player and yeah. Moved over to bass. So. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, your muse, at least what got you into yeah. the band, uh, Richard Manuel. Yeah, Richard Manuel. I'll try not to be that biased here, but I keys, think, drums, and vocals. Yeah, and he also played horns a lot. Yeah, um, uh, he interesting character. Richard had this amazing voice, like a Ray Charles, um, 
Ray Charles apparently told him that he never heard a better version of Georgia on my mind other than Richard's. Um, you know, Richard didn't like the comparison because I think he was a shy guy. He didn't. He's like, I can never yeah, be he, as good as he Ray. Definitely was not a showman. No, uh, a natural performer. I would not say. Yes, okay. yes. Um, though, all intensive purposes, by the guys in the band, was the the lead singer. Mm-hmm. He, he was labeled the lead singer. He definitely had the the best range and the best overall voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sings some of their most amazing songs. And if you hear any song, because they're also known for their harmony singing, Richard in the same song can be up on the top end doing that falsetto like he's known for, for Tears of Rage and I Shall Be Released or doing the low end too. So yeah. he was very talented. Uh, also Levon's favorite drummer. He's a very loose drummer. Very <laughs> Richard, Richard's Levon's favorite drummer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... He was a very multi-talented too. He also played lap steel, um, and he has a certificate from the Ontario Conservatory of Music uh, playing lap steel too. So we're talking about a guy who uh, drove the emotion in the band. We're talking about an emotional guy, uh, a guy that unfortunately uh, dealt with depression, uh, dealt with a lot of demons that caught up to him. uh, Yeah, we lost him to suicide. Yeah, in an era where help wasn't readily available or known about these guys didn't know about how they could help richard richard didn't know how to help himself and which is the saddest part about it and which is kind of the the crux of why this band broke up in a lot of ways they were scared about yeah. richard so yeah uh yeah richard was definitely the kind of the soul there yeah uh <clears throat> depression and and uh, illicit drugs uh not a good combination a good for combination. chemistry no right 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 all right last uh, but not least uh the professor mm-hmm. uh garth hudson yeah they called him honey boy uh because he would always put that you know that sweet honey on the yeah, track He'd yeah finish it off keyboards accordion and saxophone yeah yeah um I will say that I think he's the best organist in rock history. He revolutionized that in a lot of ways. Um, he was the lead player. He arranged a lot. He was the one that Ronnie Hawkins originally paid. He had to be paid to be in the band. That's on right, top. as a teacher. As a teacher. Yeah. yeah. He's a everybody, classically trained. Uh, everybody in the band had to pay him like yeah, $10, $10 a week. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he was a classically trained musician that started in his uncle's funeral parlor. Yeah. He grew up in the church. He played the Anglican, the Anglican songs, and that definitely informed his music. Um, and you can see that. And he was also a big classical guy. So in the band songs, you're ranging from somebody like Chuck Berry, but all the way to Bach. Like you're getting a little bit of everything from him. So um, he was, for all intents and purposes, the most underrated but most important member of the group. Uh, without him, they kind of sound in a lot of ways like your standard rock act. He kind of gave the little, the flavor, the honey, as they say, right, to that group. Right, yeah, right, right. Well, I think we've given everybody, uh, uh, you know, a good uh, understanding of why right. there is a podcast dedicated specifically to to the band yeah. uh, uh, beyond uh, just, uh, you know, their moment uh, in the sun. Yeah. Whether it's, uh, you know, as Dylan's backing band, uh, Ronnie Hawkins backing band, uh, you know, music from Big Pink mm-hmm. uh, or The Last Waltz. Um, you know, there's something really special here with these uh, guys together. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think uh, people should tune in. So um, uh, how many episodes do you have planned out so far? 
We've got about twelve episodes of the the history based podcast. That are out now. No, seven are out. Seven now. are out now. Seven yeah. are out now. We've got about twelve in in the barrel for what okay, we want that you're to, on. that we're oh. working on. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that, that the full history or? Yeah, that's the full history. It's uh, the full history yeah. before we get into the individuals. Before we get into the, into the individuals, mm-hmm. yeah, and before we start doing some more interviews. So, are you stuff. stopping in 1976? No, I'm going all the way to 99. You are. Okay. Yeah, I'm going all the way to 99 um, because. And that's when Rick dies. That's right? when Rick dies. Yeah. yeah, and that's for all intents and purposes when it actually ends. Ends. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no uh, uh, iteration of the band Past, since then. No. Yeah. No. Okay. And okay. the reason why I'm going to '99 is because they were a band until '99, and they released music until '99. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't know that after the last waltz they continued, and I think there's some gems there that people need to know about, mm-hmm. and. Also, it's a challenge because it's not well documented or as well documented. So it's going to be a great challenge for me to uh, get the research to to make those episodes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can't wait to tune in to, yeah. to those. Okay. So, you know, this is a finite project. I yeah. mean, you, you have the history. You'll talk about uh, the individuals. Yeah. And it's going to come to a close. Yeah, it will. Yeah. So what are you thinking about uh, doing uh, afterwards? I think I'll stick with the same type of thing. I want to be known as the guy that makes shows about some of the most um, influential artists that didn't necessarily hit the big time commercially in terms of the longevity. We might see a podcast about somebody like uh, John Prine or Graham Parsons, some of these individuals who uh, did a lot to shape uh, a genre or an era that are not as well documented yeah and bringing it into a podcast form that's digestible that people can listen to and learn about that way next time they're at a party or around the campfire playing guitar they can be like hey listen john prine wrote this song or yeah you know, how about this graham parsons one here yeah. something like that yeah. You know? yeah 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 and also not to you know not a big leap out of uh, what you've been doing here with, the, with the band so yeah. yeah that sounds that sounds great so um, huge uh, outlet for rock and roll. Mm-hmm. You know, not quite country. No. Uh, there's still an edge to it. Yeah. It definitely has nothing to do with Nashville. Yeah. Um, but uh, it has a lot to do with the band. Huh? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ty, listen, thanks so much for being with us on Thank Deeper you. Digs and Rock today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, the fans like the band if they've never heard of them. When I get over this mountain... You know where I want to go Straight down the Mississippi River To the Gulf of Mexico To Lake Charles, Louisiana Little Bessie girl I once knew And she told me just to come on by If there's anything that she could do Up on Cripple Creek She sends me if I spring a leaf All right, let's hear it for Ty. Listen, the band A History is a great podcast. You know, and I said at the top that it's mostly for, you know, newbies. Uh, and and I don't know if that's necessarily true. Uh, I uh, have gotten some uh, interesting insights out of it. And we've gotten uh, some fan letters from people who are very familiar with uh, the group and uh, uh, say that uh, they learned something as well. So there, there's, in, there's something there for everyone. Uh, we are very happy to have Ty and his family affair podcast. 
podcast on Pantheon. Uh, We look forward to hearing the full story, and I hope you do as well. Okay, let me just say here at the end that uh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks uh, in Northern California. Uh, Windstorms and fire. Uh, And while October in California always has some of that, it is just getting bigger and more damaging year after year. Um, I am a native Californian, and I'm used to these things. You know, we, we call them the Santa Ana winds that fuel fire season. But let me tell you, uh, the fires are getting bigger, more destructive, and kill more people. And the season uh, begins and lasts longer than what I remember uh, growing up here in this state. Uh, and basically what the historical record shows. Yeah, climate change. It's no longer a problem far out in the future. It's here, here now, and things are just not going to get better unless we all agree to do something about it and something drastic. Add to that a power company that decides to be punitive and passive-aggressive on its customers for demanding them to be responsible, safe, and modern to its customers. And I'm beginning to feel like, um, I don't know, we live in a third-world country. Now, if you're saying to yourself, well, I don't live in California, so that's your problem, (laughs) I could say uh, the same, uh, that I don't live on the Gulf Coast, so hurricanes aren't my problem. But of course, that would be ridiculous. We all live as Americans, and therefore, we all sink or swim together. And just so you know, for our international customers, yeah, this is not just an American problem. Um, It's just, you know, this is what we see every day and hear every day and read every day uh, uh, in our localized uh, part of the hemisphere. Not to get too political and all that, but I'm telling you, something shifted this year. It all became very real to the average Californian. And that day is coming for all of us and coming much quicker than you might think. Okay, off the soapbox. Tune in next week, um, as long as we have power to produce our show, that is, uh, when we sit down in studio with the incredible Holly George Warren, who has written a new book authorized by the family of Janis Joplin. It is a well-researched and highly detailed account of Janis's short life and meteoric career. She was truly a game changer, as is the book. All right, come on back for that. I think that's uh, all I got for you. Like I said, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. So, peace out. And, of course, always, regardless of what's happening with the climate, keep up the rocket. Well, it blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. And it blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble bussin' in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday he comes back. Put your makeup on. Say-
Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.